0: prostitutes, 15th century church, Joe Biden and China, what do they have in common? Well, let's see now. So over the past few days, something really major has happened within the context of globalization and the future of world powers. And this actually marks what I believe is the end of the Western lead, at least the inevitable Western lead in which we previously anticipated. What we saw over the past few days in relation to Joe Biden, in relation to specifically the events within Russia in which Xi Jinping went over to Russia to meet with Vladimir Putin, they signed documents, they spoke, they did fancy stuff, whatever. From a symbolic standpoint, this basically reiterates the major dynamics associated with world-changing powers and how, as Ray Dalio reiterated, in the past few years, changing power dynamics are inevitable. And we can see this evidently within the prostitution cases of the high-level priests and popes within the 15th century Medieval church. So let's take a look at this clip from The Guardian of Xi Jinping and Mr. Putin coming together.
1: 我说把俄罗斯作为中国国家领导人访问的首选
0: so basically, in simple English, in translation, what Xi Jinping is saying there is a big middle finger to Joseph Biden.
1: 来啊，这种关系经受了呃各种风云变幻啊的考验，历久弥坚。同时，我也邀请了普京总理啊，总统啊，哎，他今年哎能够再次呃到中国去。we have a third time, one day, one day.
0: And as many commentators are saying, basically, this is signaling the end of the Western world as we know it today. Now, does this mean we're going to have a sudden demise and crash? No, obviously not. But it does mean the world-changing powers are coming. And in comparison to this period of globalization, of harmonization, which we previously had over the past few years, over the past few decades, now we're entering into a period of deglobalization, of instability. And I think this is a great symbolic Interaction in which highlights the next few years, the next decade, in regards to changing powers. So fundamentally, as we're going to get to within one moment, nations rise and fall. And us Westerners, in our prestige, we often believe that we're always right, we're always innocent, we've never done anything wrong. There's no chance in the history of the universe that we can ever fall behind. But if you just study the 15th century church, you can clearly see this is not true. In comparison, the opposite is true. Nations fall and succeed. Nations rise and boom. And the cycle basically continues. So basically, back in the 15th century, you had the Church, in which basically acted as the government. The Church controlled all many institutions upon society, they controlled the laws within the form of these ideologues, in which were passed down by God and they opposed upon society, they controlled the infrastructure, they controlled the commerce, they controlled basically everything within society. And whilst this lasted for some time within a feudalism period, actually in the wake of the industrialized era, in the wake of the gunpowder invention, fundamentally this dynamic changed. The church was fundamentally recognized as an organization, as an institution in which was a drag upon economic growth. And this was prior to the fact that the church was fundamental towards prosperity. But eventually in the wake of the industrialized era, this dynamic changed. It flipped. And what one can see within the context of changing dynamics of power and the changing world order, as many would put it, is the fact that often these institutions, these governments, often once they are challenged, in regards to new dynamics, then these organizations, these institutions hang on to tyranny, they start imposing more tyrannical measures in order to regain power. And in fact, this is what the 15th century church did. This seems to be a key tenant, corruption and tyranny seem to be a key tenant in regards to changing dynamics of power. We'll get to what Ray Dalio said within one moment. And for example, with no word of a lie, the 15th century church, during their peak, Actually, all the high priests, all the popes, gathered together regularly, and during this era of mass corruption, they gathered all the best prostitutes and women within the town, and they used to play voting games in which they would see who could last longest on certain women. And similarly, as I alluded to earlier, in regards to the changing dynamics of society and the changing powers, these organizations hang on to tyranny. And the church did exactly this within the case of these inspired laws by God, in which they found these arbitrary laws by God and they imposed them upon civilians, upon citizens, specifically to control them. And the same seems to be true today in regards to the governments, in which you have these ideologies of gender, these radical theories. In addition, you have mass taxation, crony capitalism, and fundamentally, corruption is strife. So let's quickly take a look at what Ray Dalio said in regards to changing world powers and changing world orders. And we'll give you a little template in regards to where we are on this dynamic and what is potentially coming next.
2: And what is the moment we're in now? Are we, in your judgment, in a moment in which the world order is gonna change? Yes, we're changing the world order, okay? In 1945, we started the new world order. What I mean is, over throughout history, there's a fight for control because there's no world court that you go to and plead your case. And so there's a fight for power. So there's a war. And then the winners come out of that war and the winners set the rules. And so 1945, the United States had 80% of the world's money. Gold was money at the time. It had half the world's GDP. It had a monopoly on military power. So the US set the world order. That's why the United Nations is in New York, Washington DC has the IMF and the World Bank. And its currency became the reserve currency. And its currency became the reserve currency because of that that set of circumstances. Okay, things evolve, things change, okay, over history. So the three big things that are changing now that haven't occurred in our lifetime is the amount of debt and money creation which affects the value of money and you could see it affecting what's going on every day. Large debt inflation, means the printing of money. Right, the large debt puts puts central bankers in a choice. Do you pay it back with hard money or do you pay it back with printed devalued money? And if you pay it back with hard money, it's hard. In other words, that's when you have debt crises. So in all cases, they eventually print money and that produces inflation. Right. So that dynamics, the first. And that's the place we are at this moment. That's the place we are at this moment. And we'll we'll talk about that. We'll drill down on that in in a minute. The second. The second is um, when there's a a great internal conflict, usually when there's a large wealth and values gap at, at the same time as you have a financial problem, then you get populism, populism of the left and populism of the right. In other words, those who feel disenfranchised want people who are going to fight for them. They don't want compromisers. They want, don't want them to be in the middle because middle means that they're not fighting for them. They want them to have guts so that you have populists of the left and populists... And of their the positions harden. And their positions harden, and there are no compromises. That's why we're potentially in a situation that you could see in one of these elections, maybe in 2024, that neither side would accept losing perhaps we see that that's you see maybe you don't follow the rulings of the supreme court anyway that's a serious question today serious so these things have not happened in our lifetime but they happen many times in history so if you look at that you see from those patterns why the gaps became become greater and the positions harden and you see the dynamic so that's Mm -hmm. the second and the third is the rise of a great power to challenge the existing great power. In other words, I I gave you the example of how the United States was so dominant in 1945. Now it's not as dominant. It is not dominant. In other words, China and the opposition is as strong as the United States and its allies. And so we have a conflict. And there are five kinds of wars. And they start in this order, just sequentially, typically. A trade war, a technology war, a geopolitical influence war. Then you get into a capital and economic warfare, which we are now with sanctions. They always happened in history. And then there's a military war. And so you could see that progression happen through time. And that creates a template. So I like to look at the template and then plot dots to see how we're transpiring relative to that template.
0: Fundamentally, Ray Dalio has a simple template in regards to changing world order and the changing powers of society. And the first kind of tenant of this is debt and money creation. And as he alluded to earlier, this is in reference to the printing of money, the soft money in which devalues the currency. And secondly, is these great internal conflicts, now not solely within the financial sense in which you have major wealth gaps, but two, and most importantly, within the value sense, in which now we can barely even understand and define what a woman is in these basic concepts within society. There is a major divergence in terms of values that has occurred in everyday life. And two, the rise of another great power, in which in China's case is most evident, in which not solely you can see this from a financial point of view, but also simultaneously from a military point of view. Now this is the fundamental tenet in which I'm still optimistic by, and whilst I acknowledge the fact that changing dynamics of society are in play, and there's likely to be a changing world order in the next decades ahead, I do acknowledge the fact that the West has a unique advantage, and this is freedom and incentives, this is very important. I don't believe for a second that any state with a dictator in charge can succeed. I believe states in which need to liberate themselves, in which require liberation, fundamentally rely upon capitalism because it is the master system when it comes to economic incentives. This is the advantage of the West, the West fundamentally throughout the history, and still I would argue today has a major advantage in regards to economic incentives thanks to capitalism. So there was a question back posed in the 1900s, early 1900s, which was posed by a man called Mr. Needham, and the theory is called Needham's Question, which basically relates to understanding and questioning as to how China and India failed in terms of gaining momentum within the scientific revolution, despite the fact that they were so far ahead. In other words, why did the West succeed within the scientific revolution? Why did the scientific revolution occur within the West, despite the fact China and India were literally light years ahead in regard? to education, in regards to science, in regards to astronomy, and a range of other domains. Question Needham asks is why in the world did the scientific revolution take place within the West despite the fact China and India were so far ahead in regards to formal education, science, astronomy, and all of these other domains? Fundamentally, if you were an alien back in the 16th century, you would have fundamentally put your money on the bet which stated that the scientific revolution would take place within China in comparison to the West. And it was obvious because all of the radical innovations, all of the breakthroughs, all of the formal education, all of the science, all of the astronomy was occurring within China in comparison to the West. The West was literally light years behind China. But something very strange happened in which the West suddenly caught up and the scientific revolution took place within the West in comparison to China despite their major disadvantage. Now, the fundamental reason, to put it very simply, in regards to why the West succeeded and why the scientific revolution took place in the West in comparison to China was based upon incentives. Fundamentally, the incentives were aligned, thanks to capitalism, in regards to critical mass building, thus leading to radical innovations occurring exponentially within the West in comparison to China. China, within their dictatorship style, had skewed incentive systems in which dictators, in which emperors at the time, prematurely, purchased, prematurely overrun, prematurely shut down businesses and projects, in which therefore never led to critical mass. So what I'm saying is that within dictatorships, within the case of Russia, let's say, autocratic states, incentives are skewed against innovation, incentives are skewed towards status games instead. And history proves that to be true. And I think COVID in China was a great example of this, in which you saw this evidently in regards to incentives skewed against truth-seeking, but instead focused upon status games. Fundamentally, in China, they had a radical two-year-plus lockdown. However, the reason, I believe, as to why this occurred for such a long period, the reason as to why they made such idiotic decisions in regards to COVID, I believe fundamentally came from incentives. In other words, the incentives within government, let's say, were skewed against finding the truth and speaking up and going against the consensus. But instead, the incentives were focused upon status games, staying on the right side of Xi Jinping. The point being is that within radical dictatorships, incentives are skewed against innovation and entrepreneurialism. The reasons why is because let's say within the case of China, why in the world would you want to build a business in which takes countless years? You're away from your family for many, many months, many, many years, spending day in, day out, working upon a project in which you don't even know will succeed, it's hugely risky. Yet upon premature completion, the project is taken away by the wraith of the Chinese government. Why in the world would you want to do that? And that is the fundamental advantage that the West still has today in regards to the possibility of regaining power or maintaining the power from a geopolitical perspective. And this, by the way, is true as to what happened within the 16th century, which Needham investigated and found out that fundamentally within the 16th century, despite the fact China individualistically, India individualistically, had these leads in regards to formal education, in regards to science, in regards to art, in regards to astronomy, they could not generate critical mass The reason this twice because incentives were skewed. Critical mass never generated and therefore the scientific revolution never took place within China but instead took place in the West, in which critical mass could occur. Thus radical innovations spread like wildfires. It's like a hot bubbling stew of innovation. And the point that I'm making is that the West fundamentally has a huge advantage in regards to incentives. And whilst i think at times we overestimate our advantage and our freedom in regards to incentives our freedom in regards to creating radical companies which change the world fundamentally i would say holistically that is still true to put very simply the major advantage the west has over china and these radical dictatorships is matter of incentives incentives are still aligned towards innovation and as long as that remains true i think fundamentally the u.s will stay ahead And this is also true within the case of talent. Why in the world would the best talent globally want to go to China in which they acknowledge the fact that they must play on the right side of Xi Jinping? They acknowledge the fact that they can't find the truth. They acknowledge the fact that they're always going to have to play status games in regards to government. Why would the best talent within the world want to go to China in consideration of these skewed incentives? And they wouldn't. And that is the advantage that the West still has, specifically the US in regards to innovation, in regards to maintaining power when it comes to a geopolitical perspective. And it turns out within technology, and specifically when it comes to artificial intelligence, the top 1% of talent is foundational for massive productivity gains. So just to summarize, we are in a period of what I would call deglobalization. This prior harmonious world is clearly not here. And I think this event within Russia in which Xi Jinping went over to Russia to speak to Putin is really symbolic in terms of this turning point, this inflection point throughout history. And, as Ray Dalio mentioned, nations fall and succeed. And you can see that clearly within the case of the 15th century church, which is very comparable, very comparable to the government to which we have today within the U.S. I believe, similarly to Ray Dalio, we are on the cusp of an inflection point in which changing world powers is here. This is a period of deglobalization. This is a period of little harmony. This is a period of multiple competing powers fighting for the top space.